Welcome to Temple Talks, the podcast of Temple Israel in Minneapolis, where Jewish wisdom meets our ever-changing world. Join us as we chat with partners and thought leaders from around town and around the world. We hope these talks will inspire and challenge you. And give us all new ideas about Judaism, religious life, and social justice. I'm honored to be here with Rabbi Joseph Edelheit, who is an amazing rabbi, teacher, I think completed his doctorate recently. And so it's rabbi, doctor, doctor, rabbi. We wanted to talk today about the swastikas that you just sent to Temple. And I opened them up recently. And I guess I didn't expect my reaction to be so visceral. Not only is it a swastika, but there's wheat hanging out of it. And it looks so, you know, it, it, it looks so innocent and yet it isn't. So tell us the story of the swastikas, how you work so hard to get them removed. And just tell us the whole St. Cloud story around the swastikas. On the outside of the building, St. Mary's Cathedral in downtown St. Cloud. It burnt to the ground and was rebuilt between 1927 and 1931. They used the plans of a third century cathedral, Basilica in Rome, the Hockenkreuz, the Broken Cross, five stone circular framed and you're correct, with wheat. And these were on the upper part of the outside of the building. And they remained on the building, but now they were not Hockenkreis. They were swastikas because the swastika became the universally known, recognized symbol of the National Socialists after 1935. So again, I want to make sure no one misunderstands. The Catholic Church did not put up swastikas. They put up a third century of the common era, old, old, pre-medieval Christian symbols called the broken cross. That same symbol, used by Hindus, used by Native Americans, became, once the National Socialists took over, swastikas. That is so, so important. When I retired from Temple Israel, took the position at St. Cloud State, that was a part of a settlement of a tragic federal class action lawsuit, Zamora et al., where a group of faculty sued the single campus St. Cloud State and the state university system over allegations of anti-Semitism in employment practice. That case was not litigated, but settled. As part of the settlement, $1.5 million 
was set aside to create a Jewish presence on the St. Cloud State campus. One of the things that Ari Zamora, the named plaintiff in this suit, he was an Israeli. He brought Israeli television to St. Cloud and they telephized the Hockenkreuz swastikas on the church. So Minnesota has Catholic churches with swastikas. There were a group of activist professors from the human relations department who would take their students down to the church to protest the swastikas. Uh, when your friend Joseph Edelheit was hired, one of the first things they asked is, can you do something about the swastikas? So I went and, as you well know, I knocked on the door and became friends with the priest, the rector of the cathedral. No one had ever talked to the priest or met with the parish council. Okay. I established a relationship with him, and he said, apologetically and with shame, we know they have to come down. The parish has grown very small. We can no longer afford to replace them, mm -hmm. take them down and replace them. We want to, but we can't do it anymore. How much will it take? He gave me a number. I made a few calls and raised 80% of it for him from members of the Jewish community. He raised the rest. What was important was he invited me to teach a class to his church. The first time he had ever been in dialogue with a rabbi. They then planned and had five new outside pendants made to meet the standards of Rome. And the Hockenkreuz were taken down. And I was given one of them as a gift for helping remove it. I was also invited to participate in the service where the new pendants were sanctified by the bishop. I was the first non-Christian ever to be asked to preach in the Cathedral of St. Mary. So what did so, you say? What did you say to the congregation? I talked to them about what it means to bear the burden of history. I did not think they were an anti-Semitic church. But I did ask, beyond 1939, 1942, there were members of this church that went to fight in Europe during, 19, during World War II. When they came back and you realized you had five swastikas, not Hockenkreuz, why were they not taken down? You didn't put swastikas up, but that symbol, yes, anthropologically, 
-hmm. It's used in other traditions. Mm -hmm. But now, now it was a swastika. Mm -hmm. I, I think I offended some of the people. I challenged that they had kept it up too long. The priest would be transferred a few years later. The next rector that came in did not feel the same obligation to sustain the dialogue. And some of the people might well have remembered the rabbi professor from the university made us feel ashamed about what we had on the building. In 2010, we helped a documentary filmmaker from St. Cloud. I helped raise money, participated in the film. You gave an interview in the film about the symbol. Are, should we still be afraid of the swastika? I, I think today there would be more problem getting the swastikas down. And why? It would be a statement that an outside source was judging rather than the church themselves saying, we didn't put it up to be a symbol of rage, of anti-Semitism and racism, but others are telling us to take it down. I wanted to donate it to you and Temple Israel specifically because of what the Jewish community of the Twin Cities needs to remember. 75 years ago, 1946, there was a journalist who referred to Minneapolis as the curious twin, as the anti-Semitic capital of America. We need to remember that anti-Semitism, even in a, quote, liberal blue state, is something that will not easily be removed. Every generation has a different relation to it. St. Cloud is an area that was created by German Lutheran farmers with significant Catholic communities attended. So you have St. John's and St. Ben's, mm -hmm. 18 miles from St. Cloud, mm -hmm. very important Catholic private universities. But those Germans that have in the rural areas, not much attendant history to what these symbols mean to Jews. They're still there. In the 15 years I taught at St. Cloud State, the vast majority of undergraduates had never met a rabbi, and the vast majority had never met a Jew. So I don't think those were swastikas. I think they're Hockenkreuz, broken crosses. But they stayed on the church too long until Jews, the African-American community, and others said, that offends us. It's my hope in giving it to Temple 
that it will become something you can use in the interfaith dialogues, in the interfaith forum. It will be a way of saying, this is a tangible link to an innocent intention that history changed. So I have so many questions, but first, just a clarifying question of the broken cross. What is that? The Hockenkreuz, it is part of the earliest European, very late biblical period of how the cross was understood and it's broken and it's a part of the way the early church understood pre-Crusades. Redemption itself is always required. Even the cross gets broken. I see. So if you straighten out the arms of the swastika, Uh you get a cross. Oh, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. Wow, thank you. So so the idea, I, I don't necessarily, you know, you you speak to this as much as you want and, and direct it if it's not exactly where you want to go. But in these questions about implicit bias, intention versus impact is a huge conversation. And I think people get so caught up in, well, I, I didn't mean it or... It's not what I meant, not only I didn't mean, but not what I meant, somehow as the answer, and then the issue is really the impact of it is so much more important than intention, which is so Jewish, right? Your action, much more important than your intention. So speak to that a little bit in interfaith dialogue and helping to sort of have that conversation with people who might feel ashamed and can't get past that. And so it's, I think, a complicated conversation. Let's take something much simpler. Mm -hmm. Let's take the word Jew Mm -hmm. as a verb. When I came to campus, the federal court required that I do anti-Semitism training. Mm -hmm. I argued with the court that it would shame people. Mm -hmm. The court argued with me, if you don't do it, we'll hold you in contempt. It's a part of the settlement of the federal class action lawsuit. All right, we created a a scenario that every single member of the faculty and staff of the university had to go through a 90-minute training program. Hmm. I wrote it, but I didn't teach it because I did not want to be the person challenging other faculty members. You're, <clears throat> you, you've, you're in your office and you hear someone walk in and say, wow, I found a great car over the weekend in a barn and I was really able to Jew them down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In rural Minnesota, the number of people who use that phrase uh-huh. is 70%. Wow. And wow. they don't know what they're saying. Yeah. So we showed them that verb from the Oxford English Dictionary. And it's one of the only proper nouns that becomes a verb. Wow. Wow. People don't mean a vulgar anti Semitic statement when they use a phrase 
they've heard all their life. When someone then says, no, that's really coarse and inappropriate, you're making a statement that is unfortunately judgmental. You've been saying something unintended that is right in the Oxford English Dictionary. This is offensive. Well, it's like okay. using, it's like using, I was gypped, right? Yes, I'm gypsy. Same thing. Yeah, it's a, same thing. Yeah, same thing. And okay. it's inappropriate. And you have to be receptive to say, oh my goodness, we've been fed this all our lives. Now it's wrong. And then change it. But you're saying it to someone who then comes up to you afterwards and says, so my parents and my grandparents are bigots? Yes. No. <laughs> but that is exactly the issue. When you're an outsider and you come into a community, a campus, faculty, and you've been told by the court, change their attitudes. Yeah, very hard. Helping them see something that is minimal. So I picked the verb to Jew rather than something that is outrageous. So tell me the most, amazing transformation you experienced in this in, in in these trainings and tell me the person who really like never moved an inch and and give me give me some real examples of how people responded to these things within a week of my coming to campus several people came up and said oh they sent you, you're the incarnation of the settlement. Wow. Yes. Very specifically used a term yeah. they knew yeah. the rabbi would yeah. understand. Yeah. A week before I retired in 2016, someone came to my office, said, I've waited until you retired to tell you how much you shame me mm -hmm. with the anti-Semitism training. I, I didn't know the person. <clears throat> Look, if, if you're going to change social attitudes, you move into an arena where uninvited, you are making profound judgment on the way people's culture, cultural anthropology, family sociology. You're not simply saying to them, this is politically incorrect. You're, you're going much, much deeper. It took me three years mm -hmm. to develop a relationship before mm -hmm. the parish council would trust me mm -hmm. that they could take the Hockenkreis down mm -hmm. without my telling them they were anti-Semites. Mm -hmm. Not all change, in my view, needs to take place with the tragic shaming of a past some people are not part of. It seems to me that this swastika represents the complex ambiguity of symbols that not only Jews have to deal with, but all people have to take the past and understand how complex the past is. I got the five swastikas, the Hockenkreuz down. But I spent time in that church, in dialogue 
with the priest and the members. They came to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum on a trip I created from St. Cloud State. They got to see what the Nazis did with that symbol. I think education changes people in a permanent way, in ways that shame and guilt often don't. Minnesota has more campuses like St. Cloud in which there is an absence of Jews. So what do you do when there are not enough Jews, not a minion of Jews to defend themselves from anti-Zionism when not enough Jews feel strong enough to make a statement when there is a trial going on in Charlottesville right now for what occurred in 2017 and the same neo-Nazis and white supremacists are using the trial to make statements about Jews replacing them. The absence of Jews in places like Minnesota, the Dakotas, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, I am worried about places not like the University of Minnesota, not even like St. Thomas. I'm worried about places where the absence of Jews leaves a handful of Jews even more vulnerable. If a state public university is obligated to prepare 21st century citizens for our state, should we be teaching them about what this symbol meant? So where are the other four swastikas? Three of them really had to be destroyed to be oh. removed. Mm -hmm. And one was taken out almost whole. It's in the lobby of St. Mary's with a story of what happened, why were they put up, and how were they removed. And even a picture of the old rabbi from Temple Israel who helped get them down. Well, there you go. What else do you need people to know in looking at this particular symbol and situation in history? Is there something you want more you want us to know? I want people to know that what the two of us have done, and we followed Rabbi Shapiro all of the show, interfaith dialogue is not a social action program. Interfaith dialogue is fundamental to being in a community. It is being present in the truest Buberian sense. You cannot be neighbors of churches and not participate in their lives. When I was the rabbi at Temple Israel, the Methodist church invited Jews for Jesus to do their congregation Seder. And I went and said, no, 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 you can't do that. And if you do that, I can't ever work with you again. But if you let me do the Seder for your church and never have Jews for Jesus, <clears throat> we, we have to take the risks of teaching Christians what we want what we need. So I suppose 
I never thought about it until this moment. It took a rabbi to knock on the door of St. Mary's Cathedral, that a professor was never going to knock on the door. It took a rabbi to say, you didn't put it up as swastikas, but I'm here to tell you how terrifying it is to see it on the outside of your building. The Jewish community has to return to the commitment of dialogue. That has been lost in the zeitgeist and it's not easy. I don't know how to get past the darkness of the divide to engage in the dialogues. What does it mean to sit and listen, not debate, but to listen and engage in conversations to build mutual trust? So help us understand how transformative relationships can be. Give us another example. I mean, I think of Michael O'Connell and you, I think of others. Well, so let's talk Temple a little Israel bit Israel and the Basilica of St. Mary are the only synagogue and church anywhere in the world that have jointly memorialized a Judenrein city. Temple another Israel example. has one of the 1500 64 Torah scrolls that survived the kingdom of the night. That Torah scroll comes from a small town in Bohemia that has no more Jews. Mm -hmm. The Jewish cemetery itself was uprooted by the SS. The little place where the synagogue, as we both know, we've stood there as a parking lot. Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church and the synagogue have jointly given the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, $75,000. Father O'Connell raised his half on Good Friday every year. Would not take a single check as the rabbi got. He wanted it from the congregation on Good Friday and would ask his friend, the rabbi, would you bring that Torah over to the church? And that's what Michael O'Connell and Joseph Hedelheit and eventually Marcia Zimmerman did. We worked together to share the burden mutually of the change that had to happen. And so the work that you've done is continued, Devin, and we understand that relationships are at the heart of it without question. And this particular project is stunning. In, in what you've achieved and what has happened. And now you're right, we have to take it to the next step so that it isn't forgotten, so that we tell the story and that we support the journey of how it happened, that it was creating relationship between a rabbi and another priest. I think that is the story. I think it is beautiful. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Temple Talks. Any comments or questions can be directed to me at tmoss at templeisrael.com. Can't wait for the next episode.